welcome to the Banda About podcast series. Today, I will be chatting to a drummer who I believe was in the very first new wave punk band here in South Australia in the mid-70s and is the internationally recognised author of the book Progressive Rock Drumming. It is my great pleasure to welcome Andy Griffiths. Welcome, Andy, and thank you for making time to chat with me today. Hello, Di. Thank you very much. We've finally got here at last. I know I've been pretty busy and it's hard to catch, but I appreciate the time as well. It's great. Oh, look, I know that you're a very busy man, so I'm really to appreciate you, you finding some time for me. It's great. Uh, should be some fun. Good. I hope so. <laughs> All right, Andy, let's start from the beginning. Where were you born? I was born in Adelaide, uh, Queen Elizabeth Hospital. Um, Mum comes from Adelaide. Dad comes from Mornington, Victoria. Uh, I was born in the late 50s. I've got three brothers. Mum comes from a family of 10, so we had lots of family times as I was growing up when I was younger. Dad's only from two, um, has another brother. And I was lucky to spend a lot of time with both grandparents as I grew up, probably until my mid-teens. So I've had a, uh, an interesting, great childhood in Adelaide until mm-hmm. we moved to the state later days. But that's basically it in a nutshell. Okay. Where did you go to school? Uh, went to North Adelaide Primary, mm-hmm. um, next to Perryman's Bakery, a famous bakery in Adelaide here, which I ended up working with uh, one of the guys from the day goes for about four or five years. Um and I used to work there after school. Perryman's, uh, but North Adelaide Primary was a great little school, um, you know, really old school from the turn of the century, and just a you know, mix with all sorts of people, um, Greeks and Italians and all sorts, because uh, I probably went to school with, there's a lot of people my age with that um, next generation of the immigrants from the 50s, you know, that yeah. came out here in the pom. So it was really interesting. It was good fun. It was great. Excellent. Do either of your parents have a musical background or anyone else in the family? Uh, my mother doesn't, but my fa- my grandfather was actually um, an, in a circus and he could play piano accordion and piano on my father's side. And uh, he was actually quite an accomplished acrobat. He used to do all these tricks. And I remember him doing stuff at 80 years of age on the top of a chimney with a revolving ball-bearing cup doing a headstand, spinning around and playing his mouth organ at the same time at eight years of age. And you go, wow, you know, like it was something phenomenal. And uh, so I had a lot of respect and, and, you know, and I know a lot about his his life of playing in circuses and being a boxer. I used to teach my brother and I boxing around the back of the chicken shed and Dad used to hate that because he didn't want us to see, it, see us fighting, but we, <laughs> we had fun doing that, you know. So there's all those sorts of things. And on Mum's side, she had the big family of ten and that I was – um, nearly as old as her youngest brothers and sisters, so um, being the eldest of, of the grandchildren. Mm. So uh, th- that musical side certainly came through from my grandfather, I think, and the, I've always been fairly fit. I've got that feeling, a lot of genes you get from your grandparents, I think. Yeah, you do. Um, so, it, yeah, music was always around us, and it was just good fun. You know, we'd go to mornings and regularly, like for, um, trips backwards and forwards, every holiday, every long weekend to, to catch up with them. When I was young, and I remember all those things, and there was always music in the house. Grandpa play, playing the piano accordion, my grandmother playing the piano, and he's playing, you know, just great fun times. Yeah, it was really good. So that was probably my early exposure to music in general. Mm. Um, and how the, the drum part came around was, I don't recall this, but mum said that um, I'd get up at 5.30 on the day that it was my turn to do the 
the role as we all marched in at North Adelaide Primary and um, wanted to play drums and do it, which I did. Uh, little did I know that it would lead me to do all the things that I have done. Mm. So uh, mm. just an interest. My father loved uh, brass bands, and I can always remember having lots of um, drum and brass stuff around the place. And uh, So there's all these things that probably play on you when you're younger that you don't realise, you know. Yeah, yeah. And form you a little bit. Mm. So that was the start of all that. Okay. Um, so when did you get your first kit? Well, that didn't happen until I was about probably 13. Um, mm-hmm. We lived in North Adelaide until I was about, well, it was about 12 or 13. My mum fell pregnant with my youngest brother and they had to move to another house. They found a bigger house down on Grange Road at Flinders Park and they moved down there, which meant then we had room that I could actually get a drum kit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other place was a 100-year-old cottage off Margaret Street, North Adelaide, and there was not much room. My brother and I shared uh, a bunk bed in a room the size of you know a toilet almost. It was that small. Yeah. So um, when the opportunity came to get one, I was working after school at Tom the Cheap and all those sorts of things. Saved enough money. I think I had $150 to um, – I bought an old um, star drum kit from one of my mother's um, uncles. And um, that started that. So I used to build the living daylights out of that mm-hmm. <laughs> in a spare room in this bigger house, which was really good. Great. Which ended up being, um, once, late, as I got older, I um, it was a great rehearsal room. They let me have a room for a rehearsal room. So I was very lucky that they really allowed me to do that. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of money in the house, but that wasn't what it was about. They said, look, you can use a room and have your jams there and do whatever. So I was very lucky to do that. And so where did you go to high school, Andy? I went to Adelaide High School. Adelaide. Uh, Adelaide High School in the city, yeah. Um, always wanted to go to, I think, Nailsworth Tech because we lived in North Adelaide at the time. And I you know, I probably wanted to do something more with my hands rather than scholastic. But I think mum and dad wanted me to go to Adelaide High, which, which I did. And I spent three years there and uh, I didn't really enjoy it at all. And I, in fact, failed my second year. Uh, through a lot of, not just one thing, but a lot of reasons. Your grandfather died that year and hormones kicking in and chasing girls all over the place and school was the last thing on your mind. Yeah. Um, and so I failed second year, finished that, and then that was about the same time they shifted down to Grange Road and I finished my last year at um, Seaton Tech down at Royal Parkway. Um, and that was about 1974, so I did third year in those days. Yeah. And at 15, I then went and did an apprenticeship as a boilermaker welder. So, oh. That was the end of the school days. Okay. It was great to get out of school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I could have done scholastic stuff, but I, um, but it just didn't appeal to me. You know, I'd, I'd rather use my hands and, and make things and do stuff, which I'd done with my father in North Adelaide. He was a uh, a mechanic and used to work on lots of cars and hot rods and all sorts of stuff. And um, I used to be, I used to have to help him first. You know, change gearboxes and engines on cars until I can go and play with my mates. So uh, got it. It helped me and taught me a lot about cars. So I grew up and uh, I like working on bits and pieces now, toying, mucking around with them. So, uh, yeah, that, that's part of that side of it. Yeah, excellent. Did you have any lessons while you were going to school? Yeah, look, um, I took drum lessons uh, at John Reynolds, mm-hmm. great store. I used to love going to John Reynolds there. And all the little rabbit warrens out the back where we all had our lessons. And I had a teacher, Bruce Matthew, lovely guy. I'm still in touch with a great friend. 
and mentor over the years and I loved his teaching style back in the day. So I started there in uh, about 73. Again, the same time we moved to the, the bigger house and had the drum kit. Mm. And Bruce was fantastic. He uh, didn't just get me to stick on the snare drum, which a lot of um, drum teachers used to do back in the day. Um, he said, look, within the first lesson, I'm sort of playing beats and mucking around. And that's what you want to do as a teenager. You want to be able to play along and do some stuff. So we did. And that influenced heavily on how I took on later my teaching style as well. So, mm. um, but that was just great fun days. You know, anybody, in, if people listening to this, they know that John Reynolds back in those early 70s, and I've heard people talk about before that, it was just fun. You'd go there on a Saturday morning and there'd be four or five little rooms there and you'd all be, you know, bashing away, learning your stuff. There were guys from, I think, Joffy Baton from Headband, all these guys that were there, Alan Waller, a whole lot of guys that were really good drummers. And so it was a great breeding ground for all of us kids coming through. Yeah. Excellent time, excellent time. And they were, you know, they were very helpful. Mm. Um, all the guys at John Reynolds, I bought my first professional kit there in 1977. Um, yeah, that's where it started, having lessons there with Bruce. In fact, come ahead uh, in 2013, I, my wife and I took out Bruce and his wife, Helen, and I took my book <laughs> that he used to write the dates in from my first lesson just to get him to, to him to sign it. You yeah, know, right? that, yeah. That's where I started. And uh, the poor guy's really in tears. But that's the connection, you know. You Some people in your life are, really mean a lot to you and do help you and mentor you a bit. And Bruce is a bit like that. So yeah. it was great. No, that's lovely. Mm, it was. What was the first band that you joined? Right. Well, going back to, the, say, those early days when I started to learn drums, I have a very good friend to this day. We're best mates. My mate Simon Dillon. He played. He started to learn bass. We both went to. We both met at Adelaide High School and formed a friendship. He lived at Prospect. I just moved down to, to Flinders Park, and so well, we started sort of jamming each other's house. You know, he'd bring his bass down. I obviously couldn't take drums to his place, but I had a guitar. We'd take the guitar up there and we'd muck around. So he and I started jamming first. On all sorts of stuff and, and the similar interest in music, you know. Mm. Um, and then the first band was really Black Chrome with Simon Stretton. Now, Simon Stretton used to live in North Adelaide. His mm. father was Hugh Stretton, a well-known author. He put some books out in the 60s and a lovely gentleman. They had a lovely house in uh, Tin Street and just lovely people, you know. And uh, I used to knock around with his younger brothers because he was actually three or four years older than me and he'd been over to England um, probably for I think the early 70s. He was, I'm not sure he studied law there, but he certainly studied yeah, law. Yeah, I was going to say this is band. the same Simon Stretton that is a district court judge, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Correct. Uh-huh. Correct. Lovely guy. So, you know, we were good friend, family friends living just behind their house. We all sort of knocked around again, not with Simon, but with Fabian and his brothers. My brother and I used to knock around with him all the time. So we were all having you know, a great time in our younger years. And then come forward, I, I can't remember how I bumped into Simon, but maybe he was um, at the house when I called in to say hello, because by that time I'm, you know, I've am i got a job doing my apprenticeship, and you know, you've got to look at the car, so you're driving all over the place, moving around. And um, we got together and had a jam. So myself, Simon Stratton and Simon Dillon started jamming in Tish Street in Simon's um, the living rooms there. And uh, while Maria Viva, one of my old schoolmates next door, was playing... Uh, piano, like two or three hours practice at a time, and she became, I believe, a concert pianist who travelled Europe and went all over the place. So yeah. from those two houses came a lot of a lot of music. Wow. Uh, that's where it started. And we just started off doing, uh, like everybody, covers. Yeah. You know, uh, 
Johnny B. Good and some bag company stuff and a whole lot of things through that about 1970, it would have been 76 or so, I reckon, mm-hmm. we started there. So I might have been about 16. So that was the first the first band. We spent lots of hours <laughs> annoying neighbours thrashing things out as, as, I guess, as loud as we could with our old crappy instruments, but it was good fun. That's where it started. Now, okay. we weren't called Black Chrome then. It was called Fury. Um, and we did our first show under that name at a place called the Little Theatre in the university. Yeah. I think on the, Kin- on the Kinter Avenue side, there's a little theatre in there. There is, two yeah. Mm-hmm. two people. <laughs> so there's two people rolled up. We've done this show. It was a, just a great fun thing. Simon Dylan played. He started off at one of the, the wrong song, but because they were all bluesy stuff, it didn't matter. We got away with it. And it was just, you know, good fun. And I actually got a, got a recording of that gig, of that very first gig. So, uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Was good, just on a cassette. Oh, that that'd be good if we could have a bit of that for this. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll see if a few other guys. Um, I've got nearly a recording of every band I've been in. Mm. Um, I have either through myself doing it, uh, through some professional recordings, or some stuff I've got, or just on uh, two mics on a JVC cassette deck I bought for Ernst Smith for about you know hundred bucks back in the day. It cost a lot of money when I was fifteen, but I had. Oh that yeah, years. back then that was you know, a lot of money. <laughs> oh, it took me it took me ages to pay mm. it off because that was the days you'd go into Allen's and you listen to the records with the headphones, trying to find what record you're going to buy with your you know, part of your pay that week, and you're blowing all your money on records and yep. all that sort of gear. That's what we all did, so I'm no different to anybody else. And mm. they were, again, great times when you could do that sort of stuff, you know. It's a push button now where um, people don't understand what we were able to do and what we had to do to get music in those days. Even learning songs, you can punch in now YouTube, you can slow it down, three-quarter, half-speed, whatever. We had to slow down records and more out you know, turntable belts doing that to try and either get guitar licks or get drum licks or whatever. And that's what you did. Yep. You didn't know the way to work it out. That's you know? right. So that was, that was the days of Allens and all that sort of, that's what sort of carry on. But um, that was the, that was a really fun band. We went from 75 through to uh, late 77. And um, unfortunately, I think it's probably really a, a difference in musical direction. We didn't realise that we were, probably cutting edge at the time uh, and not being a you know 20 big head and we were just playing our own original stuff that's what we ended up doing we got rid of the covers and played all our own stuff and we just had a ball doing that and it didn't matter we you know take no prisoners we just had fun and um you know people say now are you with the first punk band the first this and that well i don't know if it was but it was certainly stuff other bands weren't or a few other bands might have been doing but you never heard of us you know we're all underground stuff yeah um now we missed if you want to say missed, we, we, we missed out on that wave that came through doing the marriage and all those, they actually got gigs from 78 onwards because we split up and all went different directions. Yeah. So we struggled to get gigs. We did a few what they call bijous up in the hill and up in Adelaide Hills and they were great fun. Um, bands like Phantom and uh, Bodan X, Jab, J-A-B, um, good fun. There's three or four hundred people sometimes at these gigs. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, you were fact, a bit early really because – when I yeah. um, was going out like mid eighties and yep. seeing punk bands at the Tivoli and you know the Berkeley and places like that, so I suppose yeah, you you were just a little bit too soon for Adelaide. And, and, and that's what happens, you know. You've got to you respect and appreciate where you are. Again, you don't realise at the time, but we just missed that. We missed that boat, yeah. and uh, the next wave um, got it all, which is this way it goes. But I honestly forget we did a show. I think it was at the. Um, Bridgewater Hall, there are lots of halls where they did these bijous in. And, um, you know, talk about OH&S. 
I think it was uh, Jab. They, they set up a, a plate glass sheet and wiped it up behind the drum kit <laughs> and smashed it with a hammer. Yeah, we're talking, there was just stuff that went on. You go, it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the sound was phenomenal. And, uh, you know, myself and Simon, we had to do the, we had to do our um, own door duties, right? You, you get money off people and, mm. and stopping people from drinking. There was a load, no, I don't think there was any alcohol allowed. Because I remember there's a whole bunch of bikies right up in this big states, and Simon and I are trying to say to these guys, um, hey guys, there's no beer allowed here. And these big guys in the six and a half foot tall built like a brick, you know what? They go, uh, mate, we've been bringing stuff in here all night. Certainly, come on through. Have to go <laughs> stuff here. All that sort of stuff. It was fun stuff for 16, 17 year old kids. You know, it was, it was just fun and harmless. You know, there weren't, there wasn't any trouble, there weren't any fights. It was, they were just good gigs. Yeah. Good, good things, you know. And we did other shows, I think Uni, maybe Uni Bar, outside. We did some stuff at Adelaide Uni because Simon was involved with that as he was studying law. Um, but it was hard to get gigs. And I think we did a, well, we did not think we did do a, um, an interview. And Simon did one on um, This Day Tonight because about bands that couldn't get work um, in the days when I think Bob Francis was slagging us all because he'd come from an era where, okay, it was with the Beatles, where lower cutting edge, people would hate them. But what we were doing was so alien that he hated every part of it. Um, didn't understand it, didn't get it. Yeah. Whereas some of the some of the others did, you know. So um, he was quite quite critical in general of, of anybody trying to do something different. And yet they came through the same thing and did stuff different. So you go, you know, <laughs> it's rock and roll. It's it's all changes. There's always someone changing, doing something different, and that's part of the fun. You know, yeah. You've got to you've got to appreciate that. That's what it's about. It's pretty boring. If you're going to sit on the same old stuff, which a lot of bands do, and not maybe progress a bit, you know, I, I guess it would have been nice to have had some, should we say, in quotes, fame. But who would? I, I don't think I could stand playing the same songs over and over each night of your own songs mm. uh, without changing. Mm. And yet there are plenty to do it. So is it for the money? Is it just to keep it rolling, the juggernaut? I don't know, but I've been pretty happy with what I've done. So mm. now I believe your brother. Performed in one of these gigs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, we, in Black Chrome, we had, um, I think I even tried playing guitar at one stage and I didn't, I'm trying to do it, but I didn't enjoy it. I wanted to go out playing drums and we got another guitarist in at one stage called, his name was Andy Fermore. Yeah, so Andy mm-hmm. Fermore was, he played guitar for a while and then my brother uh, joined and was, was singing. Um, and he actually, uh, he, on the, uh, this day tonight interview, that was him not singing there then. Um, and he stayed with us until we sort of split up, and that was sort of working. But it, I don't know, it, it's hard to know when you're trying to find what the sound is. That man, we've done some recordings. We recorded with uh, called Simon had a studio down at um, Helly Beach, a lovely four-track studio. We did some stuff down there. In fact, I think Stefan, the drummer from his band, was the real drummer in later years, and uh, nice guys. Um, and that was good. Then we did some recordings in uh, a little studio in Margaret Street, North Adelaide. Did four or five songs there. So we did some recordings, but again, you know, the view was to maybe put something out, but it just the wheels fell off before we got to that level after three years of bashing head against the brick wall and and just it sort of fell apart. And um, so then Simon put out a single, I think Australia, Your God is Apathy, after that on Tomorrow Records. So he did that on his own, which has, you know, had a bit of a cold following in recent times and getting reasonable money if you can find one as a, as a, a single, you know. 
uh, what do you call it? Um, especially single, you know, trying to find one. So, yeah, funny how things turn around and come back. Yeah. So that was the, that was a story with, with my brother singing the band. And, uh, so from there, um, Simon, Dylan and I uh, started a band with him and then my brother came and was singing in that too in the early days. And that was called Squawk. And we were doing all sorts of things, originals, and we were doing Van Halen covers and uh, all sorts of stuff. Um, and that lasted for probably a year or two, maybe nearly a couple of years. Again, trying to get gigs and do all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, but then, again, the wheels sort of fell off. I can't remember why that one just stopped. But um, I think I might have gone. I wanted a, ch- a change, and I went to live in, in Melbourne for a while, about, about 1980. Yeah. And, and spent 12 months there and had a crack at, well, not much of a crack, but had a go at trying to get into some bands and do some stuff there. And um, But that really didn't work. I still had a, a girlfriend then back here. Danielle is my wife. We've been together for a long time. So my, the pool was back to Adelaide. It was hard to sort of break that. Uh, one of the interesting things that sort of makes you understand where you fit in the chain of things, I went for an audition in Melbourne. Um, somewhere up Richmond, and they said, right, bring your kit. You've got to have your kit set up, ready outside, and you get one song. You come in and do that song. I can't remember the song, but I went up, set my kit up, threw it in there, quickly put it up, did this one song. Okay, next, out you go. And I thought, this is Melbourne. This is like a band. It was really weird. Yeah, so uh, never experienced that before, never since. But I've, you know, that was just strange. So I come back home from Melbourne. Um... And what I did, I just had a variety of jobs bumming around, um, trying to get another band going. But I think in between that, again, I I really wasn't playing any bands. I had a motorbike accident and broke my elbow, which actually could have stopped me playing altogether. Yeah. Um, but it changed my playing style from traditional grip to match grip um, because I couldn't play traditional grip anymore. Mm. And um, to this day, I've played match grip and I've, I think you know, either way works for you. If it works, it works. So you don't have to be a traditional good person as long as it works for you. Yeah. Um, so I recovered from that. Probably uh, they said it'd take two years. And I said to Danielle, I said, look, oh, I'm going to go somewhere else and have a crack at this. So I to live in Sydney. So I took off to Sydney in 81, about six months after the broken elbow, thinking I'd be able to get up there and do that. But again, I joined a band called Manic Depression and they were doing all originals. But I couldn't rehearse properly because my elbow was just, it took time to recover. Yeah. So I come back with my tail between my legs after about eight months there. And um, so this is about 1981. And then decided to sort of settle down, I guess, which never happened. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I did with Danielle, but we never, you know, uh, lots of other things happened. I tried um, opening a shop up down on Grange Road called Dynamic Drumming and uh, giving lessons and selling instruments. Um, and I found out later that I was actually in the wrong area and all yeah. this sort of stuff. But from that, it got me into teaching in a big in a big way. Um, I had been introduced to it by Bruce earlier on. He uh, got me into a place called Archibar Music, out opposite of the Archibar Hotel. He used to be a guy there, Peter Franstrup, mm. used to run that. He used to build PAs and stuff. And he gave me my first teaching job, and that was actually before I went to Melbourne and did the other stuff. So... That actually got me started in the, on the teaching side, and right. that was good fun. Mm. So, but without Bruce's help, I would never have probably, well, it might have been harder to get down that path. I know I'm jumping around a bit here, but that's that just sort of puts in perspective how the teaching side started. Okay, um, yeah. 
Keep going. So then, <laughs> yeah, so then we're like, yeah, I'm just putting the time frame here. So then we get to, what's that, 81, each time I've come back from Sydney. Um, I actually, again, you know, sliding doors. I thought, nah, look, I've done all this stuff. I've done, it's time to maybe try and settle down. So I applied to join the police force, funnily enough. Um, and that was going to be, in, in those days, it took about 18 months. They didn't take in uh, inductees very uh, very often. Yeah. So um, I'll go back a step. When I was 15, we had, my uncle was a boilermaker welder. So again, talking about mentors and people that guide you. I was very keen on what he did, but also had another good friend in the family who was a motorbike cop. And so as a 15-year-old, I'm going, oh, motorbike cop would be cool. Nah, boilermaker, he's making stuff. That'd be cool. And I ended up doing the boilermaker. But then come full circle, I tried to get in the police force later through this friend who then was uh, quite high up in the police force and gave me information on how to apply. And, and he said, if you're serious, I'll, I'll tell you how to go about it. You do all the hard work. If you get in, you get in. Yeah. So... That took 80 months. So by about 82, 83, um, uh, nothing had happened. I, they said I was accepted and I hadn't heard a word from them. They said, if you don't get a letter from us, it means you're in. Uh, I've been through all their psych tests and all that sort of stuff. And I was going to give drums away and, and follow that as a path. And they never contacted me. So, okay, I waited. I was driving trucks in those days, so I was never home. I was out on the road. And I'd pop in Angus Street, say, how's it going? Oh, yeah, we'll let you know, let you know. Well, bugger me. They didn't let me know. Um, and I finally found out a couple of months later. I said, hang on. You said if you didn't get the letter, you'd be in. Here I am. Um, oh, well, we sent a patrol car around your house, and they said we didn't live there. And so I'm going, okay, I'm trying to join a police force. We can't find someone that's been in, in that place for many years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we'll give this a miss. He said, you know, you can try again. I said, mate, it took me 80 months to get here. I think we'll give that a miss. So I didn't follow that path. And um, to cut the story short, I got offered a job working at Perriman's Bakery with, bakery with uh, Neil Perriman and his dad, Max. Mm-hmm. And Neil was Tony Rome from the Dagos, yep. who I'd known from a young kid. So uh, I got to go to Perriman's. I ended up playing with the Dagos for a couple of years, and that was great fun. So I did get to get back into the you know, the original side and the independent scene that I missed out from you know, 78, 79. I got back down to 83, 84. We spent a couple of years there. Support the same two to gurus, all that sort of stuff that comes through the Tivoli, all over the place. It was awesome, really yeah. good stuff, and good fun, good fun. So uh, again, I've been lucky having, you know, been in good bands, had a lot of fun, and uh, no regrets. It's been great to that point. So that's, that's about eighty four. I stayed then uh, with Premiers till eighty seven. I was with a couple of other bands in between. Uh, did lots of <laughs> did a show at the Tivoli with a band I think called. Decadence. Now, forgive me if anybody's listening, if I'm incorrect with some of this, but I'm pretty close. They said they wanted a drummer to play along with the drum machine, right, at the same time. Okay. They said, have you done that? And I said, no, but I'll give it a crack, right? So there's these two keyboard players. Uh, I can't remember their names, but we get up there to Tiff. <laughs> I'm playing the drum, acoustic drums along with this drum machine track, having a ball in a bloody, I think I was in a Stormtrooper uniform with a helmet stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really weird, weird stuff because in those days you were doing all sorts of crazy things. That's what it was, you know. It was all alternative and different and there were lots of bands doing lots of great things. Yeah. And I was just another drummer amongst all that sort of stuff. Um, so there's probably lots of other little things I did, but I won't bore you to tears with that. It was just all, all good fun. Okay. Well- um, 84, 85, I 
think I, about 85, I joined a band called These Elements, which uh, Paul Sharman is well known around the place. Good mate. Yes, yes. He, um, yeah, he, speaking sorry, to Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I haven't heard, I, Peter Kershaw told me you've you spoken to him, so mm. I thought, it's my turn. <laughs> um, uh, Paul gave me a ring one day, he was playing with this band, or jamming with this band, and um, he got glandular fever and said, look, would you mind helping us out? You want to jump in and see if you can help me out? So I went for a rehearsal and end up joining those guys for like, 12 months or so. And we, again, we did all the, not my favourite scene, we did all the cover stuff and, you know, Bridgeway, Finn and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Travelled up through the, did the Iron Triangle, up through um, Westlands, Wales, all those joints, did that stuff for a bit of fun. Um, and that was okay. Did some TV interviews. I think we played at Murray Bridge out the ranch, all over the joint, as all those bands did. Um, again, for just for a bit of fun. Yeah. Um, that probably finished 85, 86. And I really didn't do much apart from jam with a few people um, with the view that, you know, I wanted to have another crack going interstate. Um, so discussed it with my wife, and she said, well, look, where do you want to go? I said, well, I probably should have gone to Melbourne, but I went to Sydney. And so we we left here in Easter, 87, and spent five, six years having a crack at the top level with some lovely people and again wasn't our time, we're ahead of our time, all the grunge Seattle stuff coming in ninety three, I was come back here broken a recession with two young kids. <laughs> Had a crack <laughs> go, but you know, no regrets and great mates and good times and yeah, and it's still a good mate today. So Well you're obviously uh, ahead of your times, Andy. You need to just like, you know, hold on <laughs> to your ideas for a couple of years and then you know. <laughs> Sounds like a wonderful partner. You're very lucky. Yeah, yeah. Look, you know, not, I've got mates that had second, third wives, but maybe it's them, not the partner. Um, you know, it's a very hard, unforgiving game. And mm-hmm. um, you know, if anybody thinks anything different, then they fool themselves because you're out all the time. You leave, might leave at four or five to go and set up for a gig, and you sound checked. You're out all night. You come back at one or two, three in the morning. You know, it's, that's that's part of the game. If you don't like it, you don't do it. And as a drummer. I've lugged my gear to that many places. In Sydney, we were going up places, three flights of stairs with metal hard cases and, you know, and uh, all that sort of stuff. And, but I never regretted it and I never complained about it because I love, I just love playing in it. And I know that I've always given, and guys know that I play with, I give 110% every time. I don't care if there's two people there, if there's 2,000 people there, you just play your ass off and that's what it's about. And um, even with my back issues now, if I'm going to play, I'm going to have a play. And... Um, that's that's how I approach it. Um, take no prisoners, having some fun. Yeah, no, that's that's good. It's uh, so, very similar to what Paul said the other week when I spoke with him. Yeah, yeah, and and Sydney was great. Uh, you know, it really opened your eyes up. Look, I couldn't find people here and uh, that wanted to. This is the difference. I mean, Adelaide's had so many great artists, but they've generally all gone into state and chase because you couldn't find similar people generally that wanted to put the effort in to go the extra yards. They complain about travelling a few miles for rehearsal. Oh, I've got this on, I've got that on. When I went to Sydney, no one complained. Jimmy, the bass player, is one of my best mates. I was best man at his wedding 10 or 16 years ago. Um, he would travel from Blacktown to Alexandria for rehearsals three nights a week, right? So 80, 90 kilometre round trip 
and work full time. Yeah. Yeah. No complaints. Never, not once in all the time, you know, and all those guys did that. And that was the difference. And, you know, you, you, you put in, you put in, and that's it. And funnily, we had a bit of a chat the other night. Unfortunately, we got a couple of guys in that band that aren't too good at the moment. One passed away about a week and a half ago, and Mark Thrasher, our keyboard player, and Greg O's doing a bit tough. Um, but, Neil, we, we, we used to rehearse up a couple, lots of places. We went to a place called, I think, Now Studios in Mushkutter Bay. And um, after we were rehearsing there one day, Neil was hanging back. And he just told, told me this the other night. He said, he was talking to the guy there. He said, I can't remember the guy. He said, you know, you know guys, you, he said, you've got a really good band. He said, but you're never going to make it. And Neil goes, why is that? He said, you're just not going to make it. Why? Neil says, as the guy said to Neil, because you pay your bills. You're working. <laughs> yeah. And you pay your bills. He said, chisel all these people. Everyone comes through here. He said, they got no money. They're two or three months behind in paying their bill, their bills off, all, the, all their rehearsals. We don't get the money. You guys come and pay. He said, you know, these guys are doing it hard, but they've they got no money. They end up being broke. They end up being drunks. Yeah. Unfortunately, there are a lot of them that do end up being that way. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of drugs in it. One thing I hated about Sydney was there's a lot of drugs there, and there's a lot of places that we didn't play because I know they were dealing in coke and other shit, and we said we ain't going to get involved in that, and we didn't, to our credit. I, we held our guns out, and... It's not one part of our scene. And, and these places, I knew the places we couldn't get into because I was trying to get lots of gigs and got us in lots of places, but I knew where they were being paid in other stuff. Yeah. We weren't getting in there because we weren't part of that scene. Mm. And so if you're not part of that scene, you don't get in there. And people might dispute that, but we've seen it firsthand and been amongst it, so you know what was there. Yeah. So that wasn't our thing. We, we just play music. <laughs> we didn't need that crap. Sort of stuff. So that that takes a bit of being thick skin 
Uh, yeah. By the same token, it's hard to promote yourself as a band trying to get work when you, you try and get a manager's original band doing stuff. So, yeah, um, it, it teaches you a few things. Yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> no, no, it's not. No, well, it never is. It's, um, some it's people just get lucky. Oh, look, and some, are, well, some are better than others, mate. Well, true, but I mean, yeah, it's not right easy for a lot of re- very talented people to struggle to, no, no. to make their way. Mm. That's right. We're all, we're all having fun doing the same thing and trying to you know, trying to create stuff, and that's what I like about it is you are, you know, even though it may have been done before, you were writing your own songs, you're doing your own stuff, and that's that's really cool. That's really, that's really good. And it pays so, to have a backup um, trade or career plan. Look. You've got to have something to fall back on, I guess, yeah. Um, mm. I, you know, would, it, would it have been any different, in hindsight, to go full on and, um, you know, none of us have jobs and do that thing? Maybe not. Mm. We're still the wrong – a band maybe in the wrong time. So, no, look, we, we, we balanced it. I've still got my wife and the other guys that still were there, you know, wife had a balance of things. So you go, we had a crack at it our way, and that's cool. We can all we can all live with that. That's yeah, no I think while you're having a crack at it, once you have a family, it sort of it gets exactly. to a point where you, you know, you have to actually provide on a regular basis, exactly. and um, you know, it, it's it's the deal breaker for a lot of people with for music. Most people. Mm. Yeah, you know, lucky I was still able to keep playing even with kids. You know, when I come back from from Sydney, but it's the responsibility thing. It really is a selfish game when you when you are trying to do that because you you have to put yourself first, and your family does always come second. You know, you can do a gig, you can't go to a party because you're playing somewhere, you know. You probably got a big gig tonight, you were going to play at Selena's at Coogee Bay, yeah, mm. or we can't go this 21st or, you know. Yeah, or a wedding or something, yeah. A wedding, yeah. yeah. And mm. so we sacrifice, all mm. musicians sacrifice their asses off to follow their love and I'm no different to anybody else. And so um, if you're not prepared to do that, well, you don't do it. Uh, I was, and I was lucky that I had a, a lovely partner that supported me and allowed me to do that. Mm. And family, as I came back from, like I say, we come back from Sydney in 92 uh, with no money, staying at my in-laws' house, Peter and Glenda, lovely people. They put us up for six months with two young kids, like I say, under three. Well, I'm trying to find a job in the middle of a recession when the bank, the state bank went oh, broke. Yeah, and yeah. I was gone for all that. But, yeah, I knew, heard what was going on. Um, and eventually, I think within about... Oh, four or five weeks. Luckily, um, a mate of mine, Mick Kidd, um, who plays Mick Kidd Blues. Does yeah, I know Mick. Dave, yeah, Dave yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mick and Dave. Yeah, we, we, yeah. Well, Dave, uh, Mick, Mick used to play with myself and Dave Reed and all those guys back in the, the late 70s in, in bands then. And so we've been, all been good mates over the years. And uh, Mick was playing in a band called Bluestone. Yeah. So this is about 90, 92, 93. And... Uh, he rang me up <laughs> again the days of when Australia Post would deliver stuff pretty quickly and cassettes. Mick said, Oh, we've got a gig on Friday night at the Victoria Strath, you know. You uh, you want to jump in? I heard you back in town. You want to jump in and have a play? I think it was George Abbott Young couldn't make it. He used to play with China White Session, good drummer. Yeah. He said, I can't do it. I said, Yeah, well, why not? So this is on Tuesday. I think he posted the tape, got me by Wednesday or Thursday. We had 40 songs, just written down a few starts, and we played the Friday night. In those days, the Vic. Uh, only had had a very small bar, so you're facing the bar. The drum kit was nearly on the bar, so I could almost have a beer while I'm playing. <laughs> and uh, had a ball. And so I was with them for a couple of years. And again, we did um, obscure covers and some originals, and we did a lot of stuff down south, the Aussie Inn and all these sorts of places, and down Victor and all over the place. Pondy, I think we did a Pondy show, yeah, 93. And um, again, a good good fun. I think we held the record of the Aussie Inn for about 300 people. So it just jammed them in. So Keith Ormore playing harp. Uh, Roscoe Phelps playing bass, 
and uh, me on drums and Mick on guitar. So um, we did that for a couple of years, and then um, I think what that one. Well, you know, that, that's, I left the band or I got asked to leave the band because I wasn't bluesy enough, I think, but we're still, <laughs> still mates and push on and away you go. So, mm. first band ever got asked to leave. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't good enough. <laughs> mm. <laughs> no, it's, it's just one of those things. A clash of personalities, but um, no, good stuff. And then, so then I really was committed then to, uh, I did get a full time job in that period, late 93. I worked for, um, Cowley's Pies and Parsons down there at Richmond for a while. That got me settled again then. I could have got the same money probably on the dole with two kids, but I didn't want to do that. So I got a job that I think I was breaking even by the time I paid petrol and got back here down to uh, O'Hallon Hill where we were, we were living. Um, but I wanted to work. I, don't, you know, I wasn't. A, I didn't want to stay on the dole as such. Yeah. So that's what we did. So from there, there was really then commitment to um, you know, getting feeding the family and seeing what I wanted to do, um, and I thought, I'll have a crack at maybe doing a shop again, which then is the shop I'm in now. I started that off with, uh, I was working in the band with Mick and the boys, and um, working in the bakery at 5.30 in the morning, get sleep in the afternoon, come down to the shop for a few hours, and start trying to get some students and set up from there with my own drum kit and bass and stuff in the windows um, in a small little shop, and that's how the shop I've got now started. So, uh, and some of the bands around the place actually were formed in that in that shop uh, from taking lessons with some of the teachers I had oh, wow. back in the day. So, yeah, like I say, it's you just never know where you're going to end up. But uh, I was sort of forced into that with Cowleys. They were going pretty rough actually, and they were going to uh, close up. So they sort of give us a bit of, a little bit small payout, fifteen hundred bucks. And I thought, right, that gives me enough to have a crack at going full time here in the shop and. Uh, Again, like everybody else, still had a mortgage. I didn't get any help from anybody. The, the banks wouldn't lend any dough, so I just had a crack at it. And again, through the, the support of my wife, yeah, she wasn't working. She's helped me in the shop. We just did it. And uh, thirty years, nearly thirty years later, we're still we're still doing it. So that was that sort of period, '95, '96. I played in various bands around the place then. But again, I was too you know, had too much family and too much going trying to build the business up. You don't get time mm. to do your own thing, which is fine. It was my turn to get back. You know, I've had it all my way for many years, and I did that. So um, then I did get back into a, a – I played in a band called Guest Down This Way with a good mate, uh, become good mates, Bruce and Deb Matthews and Stretch on guitar, and we used to do some gigs around the place just for fun. They were, you know, doing uh, covers and stuff, and that was good fun. Did some recordings. But then about 90 – I had try I guess I played with John Lambert too. John and uh, – what's his name? Uh, Paul. Paul from, uh, used to be in Satisfaction, the singer, Paul Curtis. Oh, right, yeah. In yep. a band. He was mm-hmm. playing bass. Mm-hmm. Good bass player, good singer. Did some stuff with um, some studios down here called Southern Sound Studios back in the mid-90s. And they used to put on gigs with Hobson's Choice and a whole lot of those, again, original alternative bands. Mm-hmm. Dave Hopgood, good drummer, lots of people around the place doing that sort of stuff. So we did a couple of bands through there. But again, mainly covers, not really originals, while I was still working in the shop and doing that. But I had fun the late 90s uh, in a band called New England Stone. It was all originals. Uh, a guy called Steve Smart, um, a couple other guys. A guy called Jack was was managing the band. And we played up around town doing a lot of alternative gigs and did quite a lot of recordings. And that was really good fun because it was getting back to what I really enjoyed, you know, doing somebody's, doing your own stuff. Not mine, but somebody else's originals. And yeah. other songs, you know. So, again, having some fun. Just having some fun. 
doing what I like doing, not just playing covers. Excellent. <laughs> not that I'm against them, but that's that's my that's my bag, you know. It's nice like, to be know. able to mix it up, though, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And I jumped in for lots of people. You know, in Sydney, I would do some filling stuff for people, for mates. They saw what you're doing, a lot. you'd go and do some stuff to help me out. And that's great because you're only, yeah, you're on the edge, but then I like that part of it, the excitement, but you're not doing it every night, you know. Mm. Um, get bored. I get bored doing that. <laughs> <laughs> you can't beat the artist. You know, when you listen to some of these recordings by artists that we all love, you go, wow, that's. They've, they've nailed, they've captured that song, however they did it, and it's just really cool. And that was their song, you know, that's their thing. You try and copy it, ah, you can play it, but there's something magical about when you, even as a band, recording your own stuff and, and other players will notice, when you, you get something right or it really works, you go, wow, that's pretty cool, you know, it really sends singles down your spine, you know you've captured something that really was pretty good. Yeah. You know? and, and it might never, might never make the airwaves, in most cases it doesn't, but you go, yeah, that was excellent, that was really, really good, so... That's my take on, I guess, cover bands, and I respect everybody for doing their own thing. Mm. But it just doesn't appeal to me on a regular basis. Okay. So now we're going from there. That's just a picture of about 2001. Can I ask a question? <laughs> yeah, I, I told you. I didn't shut up. <laughs> I'm sorry if I'm being... Uh, no, 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 it's fine. But, you know, uh, occasionally I like to ask a question. I have to remind people that I'm still here occasionally. That's all. <laughs> This is now the Andy Griffith show. No, because this is funny. We we went on a houseboat many years ago, myself, Mick Kid, a whole lot of guys, and we're talking again, maybe 79, went around that era, and um, we had this houseboat for for the weekend. And I think we stopped at Remark at the pub, and so we're out the front of the pub with just buckets and acoustic guitars, and the big showboat pulls up with this <laughs> with this big band playing. Oh, they're playing stuff inside, and all the people come out the boat. They're hanging over the top of this little bar, the Remarks, the, you know, the wall thing there. Yeah. And we're just, and they're all clapping for us. We're just having a ball playing buckets with sticks and bloody guitars on the back <laughs> And we're just laughing till they going, "How cool is this? They got a band in there, but they come out here and they watch us having some fun on the houseboat. Just a bunch of musos." having a bit of fun yeah. so you look, yeah that's that's the sort of stuff i've loved doing over the years with all those guys we have all great memories yeah. of those things we did so now i'll shut up you ask me a question well i was going to say <laughs> do you have a memorable gig story that you'd like to share oh, i've got a couple some i can't tell you but um, you can tell me anything andy no, 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 no. <laughs> remember this is going to go to people are listening hello out there in the you don't have to name names <laughs> no no i'm not going to say anything um <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, well, that wasn't a gig, but that was that was memorable. I mean, there's. I think we did one. I, I've got my facts right here. We did a show. This blew me away. It was a good gig, actually. We played at the Ormond Hotel in Sydney with Out of the Blue, mm. and um, the, there's a new venue, and so we played all originals. We get up there. I think we played the two people, and we got 350 bucks. A guy never battered an eyelid. Now, original band never got that for playing, and I think we got a gig from one of those two people that were in front. Because we went on there, and, and to the credit of the guys, we played as if we, you know, there was 2,000, it didn't matter. You just played your butt off, and that's the way we approached it in that band, and that's why I loved it. With yeah. them, it was probably the best gig, because every show was a winner, you know, you just threw a few duds, and we, but we, worked, we did lots of rehearsals to get to that level. So there were shows like that that were quite, quite memorable. Black Chrome actually split up because we were supposed to be apparently going to a party to play, which we weren't told about, and we're getting phone calls. Where are you at the party? What party? And we all got the ships and split up over that. Right? When the day goes split up, we did a show at the Tivoli. Well, we attempted to do a show at the Tivoli, 
Um, Dick Cant, the the, uh, the singer, rolled up with uh, by the keyboard player Paralytic and late start. We get up on stage. We're about to build through. We start playing the song, but Dick has gone face first into the microphone on stage. Right? <laughs> Neil's turned round with his guitar, and I'm t- still playing. I kept playing. Dick's come and smashed his strat against the back wall against their flag. There's bits of string and bloody stuff going all over the place. The whole band's imploded within a minute or two. That was the end of it. We split up. It was done. That was that. That reincarnation died within thirty seconds or a minute, as quick as that. And I'm, I still see that guitar just with some past my ears. He just lost it. But rock and roll, you know. That is a really rock. memorable ending for a band. It just describes the whole scene so beautifully. You know, you'd go in there, and there was no bloody normal looking bands around there those days. Not unless you went to a like a like a you know out north or out south sort of pub pub. Then you you know you get more normal looking people, but when you're in the city, like there are freaks all over the place. <laughs> we didn't even have get given blood with glasses; it was all plastic cups. You know, come on. <laughs> we weren't trusted. Dressed up in the storm stormtrooper uniform with the helmet. I can picture that now. That's simply with the guys in the queue. I can't believe they were wearing, but it's just weird shit. It was yeah. just funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. God, clowns are decadent. They used to do some really weird shit too on stage. Yeah. Didn't they? <laughs> they did. True. 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 I mean, there were some bands that I would. I'd be there with my boyfriend at the time, but like I'd be, I'd be near an exit <coughs> and standing against a wall because <laughs> I really wanted to see this band because they're really cool. But oh my god, the ground's dangerous, <laughs> and I was only little, right? So I wasn't going right. in there. <laughs> That's the ground's dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> so you stand beside the yeah. Okay, oh, yeah, I can, god. I can run if I can see something's about to happen. <laughs> I know you did, but like there was a time when that sort of thing was expected. You expected to see things getting broken or people getting broken at a kick. (laughs) Well, when we played the box factory, because because the real punks turned up and we weren't punks, they started smashing bottles and throwing shit at us. This went berserk. They went off. They really went off. Mm. That was that was billed as Adelaide's first punk show. I remember the posters going around Adelaide was supposed to be Adelaide's first punk show and at the box factory and we weren't punks and all these punks turned up with all their gear, all their regalia, really, really full on hardcore punks. And the first band went on, weren't punks. We went on, black crime, yeah. We yeah, we were playing our hard hard stuff, but it wasn't what they expected. And they just trashed the joint, smashed the toilets, threw bottles. Everyone's dodging stuff. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a brand new drum kit. I'm trying to protect it. This is the first time I used it. Oh. <laughs> anyway. Wow. There you go. Jesus. <laughs> and, uh, that was, and my guitar was stolen. We couldn't find out for a week later because Simon went to Melbourne. So that was it. And so we split up not long after that. Is there a band that you wish that you had had the opportunity to play with them? As in play with or support? Play with. As in be in their band. As in be in their band, mm. okay. Um, look, I've never really given that much thought, to be honest, because um, I can honestly say that if, I, if I'd if i had a look, you get a feel with people when you first jam with them, you know, and mm. that would be with just talking to them or playing with them. Yeah. Um, if I didn't like something, 
I made sure that I didn't, you know, politely I didn't about from that, didn't want to be part of it. But if I liked it, and in most cases, you, you, if, if it works straight away, you go, well, this is pretty cool, this is good fun, let's let's do this. And so to me, I've, I've really can say that I've played with um, some of the best blokes and best players just for the sheer hell of it and nothing more, nothing less, trying to achieve one goal and, you know, I can't. It's hard to think of who you who would you play with. Lots of people I admire and lots of bands that I've loved watching over the years. You know, would you like to play with them? Nah, play with the guys I've played with. It's been good fun. Yeah, that's in my opinion. You know, there's yeah. I, I don't know. I can't think of anybody that I really would like to play. Would have liked to play with. You know, mm. to be honest. I come, I come from an era of playing in bands that would have you know, big Marshall stacks or with strats or. Les Pauls and stuff, and you know, hard rock stuff, and I love that. So if I was going to play with anybody, it would have been great to play with some of those bands like, you know, the Angels or Chiseling, because they were just music you love, and they were doing similar things. So uh, mm. that was my era that I was sort of brought up with, I guess. And I love that stuff, and I love the Deep Purples, I love the sound. I actually got to see them a few times, and those sorts of bands you love. But um, I guess if you wanted to play with any of them, they'd be the ones, but you'd up, up, up against some stiff competition in players. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> my favourite drummer, one of my favourite drummers, I love Ian Pace and Deep Purple and uh, Neil Pitt from uh, Rush. Love that sort of stuff. Mm. In fact, that was there's, there's a funny story there. You've got to know, you know what you can you can't do. Um, I can't remember the actual year, but it might have been in the period of, going from Black Chrome to setting something else up, there was a, I think a band in Adelaide called, it might have been called Relic, and I think they were doing a lot of Rush stuff, and they were looking for drummers, and uh, I spoke to a guy on the phone, and he said, oh, you come down and have a listen to us, somewhere at Brompton, they had a, a hall or somewhere they're practicing, and so I'm sitting outside, listen, I'm going, the big F bomb goes, what the, this guy's phenomenal, how am I going to play this stuff, you know, yeah. it was just great, so I went in there and told the guy, I said, mate, I'm not going to waste your time, you know, I can't, I can't do that, so, you know, where sometimes you get some drummers think they can play everything, want to go and do the stuff, it's wasting everybody's time. But I tend to know what I can and can't do. Yeah. So at, that, at that stage of uh, playing, I knew I wasn't going to be able to play like uh, Neil Pitt, <laughs> so I didn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's good that you um yeah can see what what your <laughs> what your abilities were. Yeah. You got to be honest. You know, you can't go wasting people's time. It's you're just kidding yourself. You know, that's it. So. True that, yes. Next question. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. You're welcome, Di. <laughs> Thank you for coming on my show. <laughs> I'm not sure why you invited me. <laughs> oh, well, you know, everybody's welcome. Oh, to listen, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on, sorry. Uh, thank you. COVID has had a tremendous impact on the music industry, Andy. How much did the pandemic affect you in regards to your store and having drum lessons and everything there? Yeah, interesting. Um, on the eve of all the shutdown stuff, um, our son uh, had planned to be married last year and was married on that 21st, 22nd weekend when Morrison the week before said, uh, guess what? Nobody's allowed to go to weddings, nobody, blah, 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 et cetera. And it was serious time because at the time, nobody yep. knew what was happening. Mm. And so luckily, he was able to have his wedding. We went, flew to Melbourne with my mother and the in-laws and brought them back. Everyone got back safely into lockdown for two weeks. 
the first time ever my wife and I have been stuck in our property and got food delivered for bloody two weeks and uh, I got a lot of work done but not what you want to do so unknown to everybody um, I'd been in touch with in that week all the parents of um, our students obviously the shop was shut for a week because I couldn't both of us couldn't get in there and the young fella helping out Zach's been with me for eight or eight years was working out late over they were going through shutdown so they shut everything down so the shop was just closed mm. and uh, I didn't panic uh, I'm not a panicker I thought all right let's just sit back and see what happens here and um, I contacted every student's parent that came to the shop and said do you want to you know, continue, you guys okay with that? Now, in fact, I'd done that the week before we went to the wedding. I thought, I'd better cover our bases because this was developing pretty quickly and see mm. if everybody was still comfortable with it, which they were because at the time, they were shutting down footy, they were shutting down life-saving, they are shutting down everything. But the parents all still wanted their kids to come for lessons one-on-one, which we're allowed to do. I contacted SA Health and they said, as long as you provide that 1.5 distance and within the meterage we've met the rules, you're allowed to continue one-on-one. I said, right. So... I did all the stuff, got all the stuff ready. Two of my guitar teachers felt uncomfortable with that and decided they didn't want to teach. Fair enough. So they stopped for two or three months. And I thought, hmm, do I have to pack up here and go home? What's going to happen? So, again, didn't panic, just kept pushing along. Um, And became the bass teacher. He came back on. So the two of us kept teaching. The the parents were happy with that, that we were able to keep – you know, teaching their kids in mm. a COVID safe way, you know, was doing all the things, all the cleanliness, everything we had to do. We just followed the rules, um, and we here we are. We got through it, you know. Um, I, I couldn't apply for any job keeper stuff for the guy because we we're on the edge of that thirty percent. And at the time, you know, there was no guarantee you were going to get any help for that anyway. Yeah. And you had to pay it up front for however many weeks. And I was, I didn't have the money to do that. My business goes month by month, so I go well. That was it. We just had to try and trade through it and said, hopefully, if there's a, a job for you at the end, there is, you know, um, we'll just keep going. So we got through it and I've, you know, heard people carry on about how, um, you know, I was, you know, music shops did great. That, well, that's not true. We all still had to get through and uh, we're not, you know, haven't made squillions of dollars to try and, you know, go away and buy another house or go on holiday when you can't go away. We're just we're keeping our head above water to get through. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what it's about. That's what it's about. So here we are at the end of the day. We're still there. The guys come back teaching after after a few months, and we just tentatively trade through it. Mm. And mm. Um, that's what it's about. Uh, and luckily, we, as in we Australia, dodged the bullet. You know, like um, through I think, and I think South Australia probably, and some of the other states that let their health authorities deal with it deal with it the best way. I'm not going to get too political. but No, um, no, I think South Australia did very well. Yes. They they put it in the hands Mm. of the health officials and guess what? They generally know what's the right and wrong thing to do. And so that's that's my opinion of it. And uh, here we are, and if everybody does the right thing, you know, it's interesting, there's the QR code, which obviously we've all got to do. Um, People lately have been carrying on about, you know, people not adhering to it and in some situations it will be hard to govern but you know I look and watch when someone comes in my shop I watch to see if they've done it and if, the, if I haven't seen them done it I'll say look have you signed it and if you know they haven't they'll write in the book they do it yeah. so you can politely be proactive in getting people to do it without upsetting them you know I had a couple of people early on that point blank refused to do it so I asked them to leave the shop yep that's my that's my right you don't mm. want you want to be part of this system 
irrespective of your beliefs, it's a, a very small price to pay to keep us open, to keep your kids doing stuff, to keep us going to shops and not mm. being locked out. Like my son had to go through Melbourne with the lockdown over there, with wearing masks everywhere, with losing his job for six weeks, you know, and his wife. So we ain't got none of that. Yeah. And they're whinging about it, you know. So anyway, that's, it was funny when we went to um, just recently over to Victoria and I wasn't sure how they operated, whether they had a QR code thing. And I began to fill up at the petrol station. We're driving over there. And the woman looked at me stupid and said, QR code? What's a QR code? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, nothing to sign. No, mm. no, nothing to sign here. Well, thank you very much. You know, like, I'm just trying to do the right thing. <laughs> and mm. a, a lot of them, a lot of the central regions are very disbelieving of it, you know, I believe. And, um, well, you know, it's a serious thing. It has been a serious thing. And if you've got someone that's, poorly and they get it then it's going to take them out then that's the last thing you want so let's all do the right thing so where was that that was melbourne yeah 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 because uh, my dad's in new south wales and they have qr codes over there yeah i was surprised they didn't yeah they yeah didn't oh, so anyway so that's mm. their one maybe that's maybe they, should have they like to be a bit different over there don't they they certainly do didn't my turn out too well the first time <laughs> No, exactly, and uh, but you know why? Well, let's not be political, but you know maybe they uh, maybe they should have put it in the hands of the um, health people instead of the politicians, and that might have a different result. Mm. Different. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe. We're only just speaking out here, though. I'm mm. not, not being too socially <laughs> responsible. Oh, it's okay. I think I think the people overseas enjoy this part of the conversation more than anybody because well, they're still waiting. You know, a lot of them are still waiting to for things to be open. Mm. My. Uh, my mother-in-law has friends in Germany. We've got you know, people you know around the place, and and you know, we we cannot imagine really what they've all been through. You know, mm. with the the amount that have died and and the, and the drama from it. You go, we we can't imagine. We're not there. You know, we're able right. to do what we're doing. They're stuck in the letter. They go for a walk at night or something. Just not allowed to do anything. So it's starting to ease up, obviously now with the vaccines and stuff. But um, yeah, look, we we can't comprehend what they've been through. Really. <clears throat> yeah, I interviewed somebody from the UK recently and their hotels were just starting to open up again and they could go in and have a beer but they had to sit down to drink it and and I'm thinking oh gosh I remember when back then (laughs) like it seems like so long ago (laughs) now you know we had all these different stages it was like oh wow (laughs) yeah look it's something no one's ever experienced that day you know yes things are different now but you know the Spanish I can think killed 52 million back in the day and yes things were different they didn't have the same sorts of uh, things they could do then but you know in general some countries could have controlled and should have taken it a bit more serious and that's the bottom line yeah unfortunately by the time the boats would be arriving with with the mail to tell them that there's a problem (laughs) so with the uh the virus yeah Yeah, yeah, exactly (laughs) exactly so you know but it's just unfortunate that yeah some people were disbelieving of it but now you know let's hopefully that the uh again irrespective of what your views are on vaccines the vaccines work with things and if it means you've got to have something have a shot to take well you do it and um Let's, let's, let's just do it, get on with it. Look, you've got to do what you've got to do. If you're yep. the sort of person that, you know, for medical reasons or whatever, you can't have a vaccine, well, then so be uh-huh. it. Um, you know, if there's no, no no alternative for you, that's just the way it is. Hopefully by everybody else who can having it, yeah. um, we can, you know, get rid of this you know, thing, this major uh, inconvenience to our lives. That's, that's, that's right, you know, like last year on Mother's Day, you know, what. Like, both my mother and mother-in-law there in their 80s, you know, and so we we sat, you know, three metres apart outside on a lovely sunny day having a yak on chairs and not allowed to touch each other, but we forgot to see her. And you go, that's what it is. You yeah. Know? yeah. That's it. 
What's the most popular sort of items that you have in your store at the moment? When people were stuck at home, not, not knowing what to do, they were buying uh, sort of guitars and a couple of electronic drum kits and stuff like that, things they could muck around with at home and have some fun. They weren't going away to Bali or overseas spending their money. They were doing it either getting their house done up or they're, you know, buying some music instruments or doing whatever, you know, that they could do at home. So um, at the moment, things are a bit quiet, which, which happens about this time of year anyway. So yeah. there's nothing abnormal with that. But um, look, we we do a bit of a fair bit of tuition, and I sell a lot of entry level guitars, you know, nylon classic and stuff to young kids, and and I love that. Nothing nothing more pleasurable than sorting out someone with a guitar, their first guitar, making sure they get the right guitar, which is what I pride myself and all our staff do. We get them what is going to do the job. So quite often you get people in that have bought guitars from somewhere and they're just sold a guitar, haven't asked what you know. Yeah. How, what are they? What they're going to do? And the kid comes in, a seven-year-old kid comes in with a steel string dreadnought guitar that's bigger than the house. How's he going to play that? And you go, come on, you know. So I'm lucky. I've got the, you know, we'll try and and get the right thing for the child or the adult, and uh, hopefully they go and have some good fun playing years because nothing worse than trying to play a guitar that you can't play, and that's not right for you, and it's just too hard. And they give up. They'll play once or twice and stop. Mm, so it um, mm. doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help them. They haven't had the chance to see if they could go further with it. That's what it's about. Yeah, exactly. So mm. that's what generally, you know, I sell a mixture of all sorts of things. Yeah. But mainly uh, electronic kits and guitars and stuff. So. Mm. Great. Okay, so you've got, you're really busy, you're running the store, yeah. you've got a family, and yeah. then you decide to write a book. Well. Why? How? <laughs> Where'd that come from? Well, that's before the family. That's before everything. Um, back in eighty, well, back. Let's go back. Back to eighty-one when I had a go at doing the shop down on Grange Road. Yeah. Called Dynamic Drumming. I met um, a chap through there. His name was Steve Sutter, and he was a guitar player. And he wrote the jazz guitar book for Gary Turner, Brent Mites. Um, was then called Koala Publications, the mm-hmm. Progressive Series, which are great books and to this day um, are throughout the world. And um, Steve said to me, hey, hey, I reckon you might be able to do a drum book for, you know, Gary, I've just done this guitar book and we live just down the road from him. I said, oh, okay, I'll introduce it to him. So anyway, struck up a thing to meet Gary. Gary lived a couple of streets away from me and he was working out of his house at that time. I think he might have been doing import records and stuff like that. And um, here's this chap who is set up this company with Brent White doing um, lo- local books in Adelaide, guitar books, guitar method book one, and I think they'd done the bass book, maybe a keyboard book, so they had a few books, and they wanted a drum book. And Gary said, oh, you reckon you could do it? I said, well, look, I think I was teaching about 30 or 40 students then, so I was doing a lot of teaching. I said, look, I'll have a crack. I'd never thought about doing a book before. Um, so anyway, I looked around in those days, books from the UK and the States were all around about 20 bucks. And I think Gary's books were nine ninety five um, with tapes, something as well. And yeah. so he said, "That's that's what we're trying to do. What do you think?" And I said, well, "Look, I'm going to I'll, I'll do a rough draft." And then, bear in mind, there were no handshakes, there were no contracts. He said, "You want to have a go?" I said, "Yeah, I will." So I went away and I started doing this draft. And no computers. I've done it all on the typewriter. I've paste <laughs> photos on bloody full scat paper and type this stuff out with this mum's old typewriter that was missing letters and all sorts of, you know. so <laughs> I've written this draft out after about six months and I said to Gary I said look here it is this is what I think you know, if I was going to do a book 
with what was on the market, there was nothing that included everything. Mm. I said, this is similar to the way I teach. I think I would do a book like this. And look at it, he said, pretty cool. I think that's, that looks all right, you know. He said, um, but you know it's going to go worldwide. It's not just local. I go, ah, oh, okay. Because I'm thinking it's just little local books, you know, around Adelaide. Yeah. I went back and said, look, oh, look, I think I can do better. I'll go back and improve a few things and, and went back and did another six months. So it's probably 12 months of that, backwards and forwards and just, you know, just trying to sort it out. And here I'm going, wow, I've got this bloody book, you know, like I've written this thing all just on paper, handwritten and mm. typed out. And that's where it started. And so from that was um, the beginning of the, the rock drumming book, which um, I, I never envisaged going as far as it has gone, I guess, over these years. Um and then it wasn't until some years later that we actually did contracts, you know. <laughs> I think most of the guys are in the same boat. So you go, you're trusting, but Jesus. <laughs> yeah, because I've been you know, told a few stories about your record labels in, in, during yeah. this Engine Room series and they, they haven't been good, you know, happy no, endings. No, I know mm. just people have been shafted with them too, so it's not, not very good at all. But it's a cut story short. Well, there's a lot I can say about it, as in um, the things that happened through there. but. When, I, when we were doing contracts, and that might have been for another oh, five or six years later, I might have been in Sydney, then I can't recall. Anyway, I, I, we gone to, when I went to Sydney, I didn't want to teach, I just wanted to play. And so I didn't do, I could have written a second book for Gary and the guys. He said, look, want to do a second book? I said, no, look, I'll, I'll just. I covered it all in the first, thanks. <laughs> yeah, well, not really. Not, no, it wasn't that at all. Stage was the number four book used by teachers throughout Australia. I'm 
I don't know if it is now, but probably not. But I was very proud of that. That was that was pretty cool. I thought, ah, oh, there's, there's people using this book and again spreading the word, doing it, keeping it going. No, it's a wonderful achievement. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I'm very proud of it. Yeah, you should be. The band Out of the Blue that I was with in Sydney, we went, uh, we recorded with a few other bands some of the last recordings of EMI pressings in uh, Homebush in New South Wales. Mm. And we did an EP with four songs on it. And they said, come down and we'll show you through uh, the plant, the record pressing plant, which was really cool because we'd never been through something like that. And um, they were going to close it all up and virtually sell off all the machinery and demolish it, turn it up, probably got housing there now, I suppose. But they did that. <clears throat> so we went through there, I'll never forget went through there, had a look, and that was really interesting. I come from a manufacturing background, so I was really impressed with it, how they actually did it. Um, and that was about sort of November, December. I came down to Adelaide for Christmas, and Gary then, I think in those days, they were printing, uh, producing CDs out of Singapore. And mm-hmm. I think Gary might have been one of the first people to, uh, to our publications to start pressing CDs. Gary said, come out the back here, I'll show you how they're doing the CDs. We go out to a room that's maybe three metres by three metres, and these CDs just being pumped out and going, ah, mm. that's the whole thing of CDs. You know, you see you see them. And you a see lot cheaper to make, that's yeah, right. Yeah, mm. it's when you see the production side of it, you can see, okay, this is a modern technology. And about the same time, uh, Neil the guitarist and I went to a, uh, a conference thing in, in Sydney to do with music technology, and um, some of that was exactly what we're dealing with now with the stuff that's going to be around with you know usbs on little sticks and music music being played on little credit card type Mm. stuff it is virtually that and that was all being spoken about 30 years ago and here we are we get to see it all and um, see people talking about it back then so yeah look i've seen a lot of stuff happen as lots of people do but that was interesting to see from the records the cd plant the difference in it yeah it's nice to see uh vinyl coming back again though yeah it's great yeah Uh, i love vinyl Simon, uh, there's another story, but Simon Scretton, I've had a few jams with them in recent times because Black Chrome's done a few shows. And I think, unfortunately, David the drummer was a bit sick and uh, he, Simon said, look, could I go and have a couple, a bit of a hit? So I've had a few jams with them and he gave me one of their uh, white vinyl uh, EPs that they put as a live recording, I think, at the Metro with a few other bands. Mm. And it's uh, pretty cool. So mm. I go, oh, thanks, mate. That's, I like that. So, yeah, vinyl. Come back, Ryan, or bring it back. Yeah. Expensive, I know, but it's... I know, it's but it's just so nice to have, isn't it? Oh. And it is a different sound. Um, Andy, I, I saw this really interesting post the other day on Instagram, um, yep. and it was like, I noticed it more because lots of people were, like, commenting on it, so I thought I'll have a look. And it yep. was um, it was asking drummers to choose three things from a list of five that were most important to them. And then I started reading through the comments and I was actually quite surprised, like there was such a variety of answers to this particular question. And I'm like, hmm, this is interesting. I might try asking you guys it. So, yep. um, all right. So you can only you um, choose three, but you've got to yep. choose the three that are most important to you as a, as a drummer. Okay. Yep. So it's out of A, groove. Uh, yep. B is creativity. Yep. C is chops. D is technique, yep, and E is time. So you can yep. only choose three of them. What What are your three? All right. Well, I certainly would say groove. Mm-hmm. Um, and and to, to qualify that, it doesn't matter how good or how bad a player you are, you nail a groove and it works, and you get that sort of feeling. You go, wow, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. That to me, that just that works. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, Am I 
I'll have to give an example. Well, we this might end up being a really long answer if you do, because you've still got to give me two more. <laughs> yeah, I've got more. Yeah. <laughs> okay. No, look, I'll, no, 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 I'll leave it at that then. Okay, so groove, 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 uh, most definitely. Mm-hmm. And I guess, and I'll say timing. Yeah. Um, to the point that um, as a drummer, you really are like your show, The Engine Room. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in the, mm-hmm. the rhythm section generally, you, you've got to nail it. And songs do, I'm not a believer in being like a strict metronome play. Like Paul Sharp, excellent timekeeper, time yeah. better than me. Um, but I think sometimes, and it's not against Paul, but in general, sometimes songs can can move a bit with it. And you hear that in, in recordings, you know, it might lift a little bit in the chorus or whatever. And so it's not an exact metronome type keyboard rhythm mm. you know um so i think songs can float around a little bit mm-hmm. and that's part of the light that's part of the liveness of a yeah. uh, band and i i played with a, a, a very good friend unfortunately passed away a few years ago bruce a keyboard player and he and i would sometimes play and show just the two of us and uh he played a lot of songs and he taught me a bit more about time i mean i taught him a bit about a bit more about letting it go and not being so so straight because he'd always played drum machines and stuff so we both learned from it even as old farts you can never stop learning. Um, it's a bit of give and take on it from everybody's part, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that part. And what were the others, sorry? Okay, sorry. so now you've got creativity, chops or technique. Uh, creativity, again. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to have the best chops and techniques. Uh, you listen to a lot of good players. It's just about what they're playing uh, is in the field. Uh, I used to love Steve Presswich with Cold Chisel. Yeah. You know, traditional English type drummer, great drummer. You know, just nailed that group. And, oh, I saw him many times when I was younger, and you just watch him now. Even some of the footage, you say, yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, pretty cool. You don't have to have all those chops. And yet, you know, I admire, I admire really, really good fancy players that do stuff. You can just drop and join. Go, wow. Mm. Um, but sometimes those people have sacrificed family or other things to get to that level. I mm. have not done that. I've had a balance, and I'm not the best player in the world, but I'm competent, and I've got a balance of family life and playing and mm. music and all that sort of stuff, you know. So, Okay, I'm Andy, very... so who are your top three local drummers? Top three local drummers? Oh, I mean, I don't see too many these days. It's everybody working. <laughs> 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 oh, um, that's a good question. Um, Think back to when you used to go out more. Oh, look, uh, well, as in local drummers overall, yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, local guys. I used to like watching George. George David Young from China White. He was a good drum. I reckon mm-hmm. he's, I'm not sure what he's doing these days, but I, I reckon he had pretty good chops mm-hmm. uh, and, and good feel. Um, I used to like uh, John Zach. Uh, used to play Zip Boys and FAB back in the day. Mm-hmm. I might be, he might be a bit young, you might not know those guys, but he, he, they used to play at the Hacking Hotel and around the joint. Yeah. Used to like he played a song called Happy People, I think. It was a, not a bad little single. Um, and, oh, third one. Jeez, you put me under pressure now. <laughs> uh, have I got any mates? <laughs> <laughs> no, <look. laughs> <There's>, <laughs> I, I've seen some guys around, I'm not sure the names of the guys playing around towns, but, um, yeah, look, no, there's, there's, there's just lots of young, young good kids coming up playing together. They're already. Very, really, really good. I don't know the names, but that'll do. I've got two. You've that, got two? Yeah, yeah, there's a couple. You're playing safe? <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm on to you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Everybody's on the knee. You get off my back. I've already had an operation. Yeah, I've worked in sales too, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, dear. No, look, I, I, I'll tell you, I, um, I've had some good young students come through me, actually, that aren't dance, but great little drummers, you know. Or that Ryan Simmons was a good drummer. He was uh, did the uni course and played in some bands around town, but he's, he's a good drummer, good, great percussionist, and mm. uh, a good drummer. So... Uh, Look, okay, thank you. Dave Hopper was easy. He's pretty good too. He used to play Hobson's Choice. I used to no, 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 that's it. <laughs> <laughs> no <Sorry>. more. <laughs> no, you've had your three. That's it. Okay. <laughs> All right, Andy. If you could invite any musician to play a concert anywhere in the world, who would you call? Where would you hold the concert? Okay, so you can invite any musician that you want to form yes. a band, yep. you're on the kit, yep. you can play anywhere in the world, yep. I want to know who you're going to call, yep. where you're going to play, and what genre you're going to only, perform. Only, only, one, only one musician or a band? No, a band or just one, up to you. I'll tell you who I'd tell you, who I would if, <laughs> well, once, some of them are alive, some of them are dead. That's okay <laughs> because we have the power to resurrect. Yeah, okay, cool. Okay, I'm going to say... Richie Blackmore, mm-hmm. Ronnie James Dio, yep, um, and I can't remember the guy's name. Keyboard player. I went to saw Thin Lizzy at uh, Apollo Stadium, and their keyboard Snow, um, not Snow White, um, keyboard player that played with Thin Lizzy. Oh, it was pretty good. I'd play with him wherever he was. Um, yeah, I can't think of his name either. No, I can't. And um, oh, bass players. My mate Jimmy from Sydney that I played with now, the first version, he's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> right, cool. yeah that's him. That'd be good. <laughs> and where are you playing? Um, I reckon we're gonna play at Memorial Drive. Mm, all right. Because it's one of the one of the venues that uh, back in the day I'll, I'll keep it short, when I was playing with the Dagos, I believe the story was we were going to, we were supposedly supporting Midnight Oil, um around that 83, 84 period when they played there and yeah. got pulled from us a few weeks before and someone from Sydney come on and did the support act so we didn't get to do that but that would have been cool. I would have enjoyed that. So oh, well, I would That would have been cool because then I would have, I'd be able to say that I saw you play. Yeah, I know. I was at that concert but I wasn't up there. <laughs> <laughs> Is there something that you've really tried to play but you couldn't get it right? No. Um, oh, there's some things that... Quite challenging. I don't even try to play them. I'll be honest with you. I'm not about that. I just I've always been a I've always been a band person. So if I join a band, I stay with the band and see it through. Um, I'm not a I don't like being say like a solo. I'm not into being a soloist or being a clinician. I just love playing and being part of a band. That's always been my thing. So um, yeah. What was that question again? <laughs> it was just if there was something that you'd tried to play. <laughs> no, look, I t- it's, it's funny. Um, when I, again, with, in Sydney with this, with Out of the Blue, I, um, one of my own songs, funny enough, it had a, a snare piece in it that I'd uh, used as an introduction, and it wasn't hard at all. You know, and, I, and one day I stuffed it up. And it took me a few more goes to get my head around to go, why did you stuff it up? This <laughs> bloody plate, you've written it. But then we're, we're human. These things happen. I'm not a... It's I'm like when you write a song else. and you sit, like you wrote the lyrics and you're singing and then you forget them. It's like... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no point looking at other people. They didn't write it. They don't know what you're singing. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because I, 
because I've, I've mm-hmm. never been one, I don't put myself up as to be the best drummer. I'm confident and I enjoy doing what I'm doing. And I used to get a lot of crap when I put the book out of jealousy. People say, oh, he hasn't been to uni, he hasn't studied. I didn't have to do that, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I put something Gosh. out that was People are heart. just so mean, aren't they? Like, they can't just That's be happy that. for people when they have some success, really. Yeah, I don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. It was nice to get away mm-hmm. from Adelaide and break that crap and yeah. go to Sydney and start from the bottom of the pile. Well, you, you may be a big fish in the little pond. You go there, you start from scratch, you're just a bloody roadie. You know? and, um, and that was good mm. because it, uh, I did never mind start from the bottom. It uh, builds a bit of character, you know. So. Yes, I think we should all be supporting each other a bit more. Well, look, here's, here's an interesting story. I, I'm not going to say which band, but I did get a job in a band once where I beat someone else's brother to get the job. And funnily enough, every time, and we had this roadie day, so I got someone setting up kids out of the gear and that person had to be involved with setting the kid up and all the time there was something falling down and not right mm. and, and I reckon I was being sabotaged and you go that pissed me off so I'm going I'm there to play the show professional not this bullshit that goes on behind so that peed me off a bit you know you go hey what's this I didn't know I beat this brother I just got the gig and I'm playing yeah so it's not your fault you that yeah, you can yeah, play better yeah exactly yeah, great. Mm. You know, anyway yeah yeah people do that I know it's just it's wrong. It's just wrong. Grow up. <laughs> All of you, oh, grow up. <laughs> now, a little birdie whispered in my ear. Oh, here we go. Well, and this little birdie said, pardon? So this little birdie said that you might be recording some new music from home. Well, yeah. How much do you want to talk about that without going too deep? Now, look, I, um, I'm going to go back a step because... Um, I'm going to go back to my high school days with my old mate Simon Dillon. I had a fall when I was about 15 at Adelaide High School and hurt my back and didn't realise how bad it was until recent years. I'd actually fractured uh, L4, L5 down there at the lower base. And at the time, I remember I couldn't play footy, but my parents never told me what the problem was and they didn't know. No one had actually picked up on x-rays. Well, come ahead later, I've had some back issues and it forced me to have an operation. And when you get told, don't lift more than seven kilos, you're not allowed to play, you're not allowed to do anything, it was a bit devastating. I thought, wow, is this going to be the end of my playing career at sort of uh, 58 years of age? Anyway, so I had to wait on the public health system. I had to wait for 18 months to get something done about it. At the same time, the rail's been built, so everything's been delayed. Finally got in there. They were going to fuse it, put all pins and stuff in there. They didn't have to. They gave me a laminectomy, which creates a bit of a V-shape, apparently, and allows the nerves to get away. So I was able to rehabilitate without all that stuff being done, but it's left some you know, residual nerve damage to my foot trying to play kick. But the basic bottom line was I was still able to play. Mm. You know? And in that period, actually, I've written a song. I hadn't written a song for a long time. I've been so involved with... Um, Family life, you know, I lost my father. Oh, lots of things happen, you know, and you go through your own dramas and deciding, do I still want to go on with the shop? Do I want to get out? All sorts of things cross your mind as your kids get old and start to get off your hands. Um, I wrote a song. I thought, that's pretty cool. Um, and I wanted to, I've got an old Tascam 38 eight track recorder, which I've recorded bands with, done uh, a single back in 85 with another band's demos and stuff. And I really enjoyed that side of recording, but it had been sort of put in the in storage here and hadn't used it. So I dragged it all out and thought, oh, I'm going to record on that. But there were a few things that were not working on. So I had to get belts and stuff from the UK and the States. Not expensive, I just had to wait eight weeks or whatever to get here. So I spoke to one of my guitar teachers and said, look, what can I do to get a bit more, get in the real world from analog onto digital? He said, the laptop? Yeah. 
my brother gave me one. I go, no, I want it. He said, that'll do. So I went, he said, go and get a program called Reaper. So I got this program, 60 days free, you try it. I thought, cool. So it's like, without having my big desk, I'm on a laptop, still able to record all my stuff through a laptop. Mm. And I bought the program for 60 bucks. And so I started recording these songs. And in the end, I think I might have recorded about 16 or 18 songs, new songs. And I've got a whole lot of other stuff that were never put out or released from Sydney because I was doing quite a lot of songwriting in that band before I left to come home, uh, quite a lot. And I thought, hmm, there's a, there's a bit of excitement here. I'm getting excited with this. So I then recorded everything. I played bass, I played keyboards. I've done a whole lot on there myself. But I wanted the, a band situation. I just didn't want me to be doing this stuff, which is okay for demos, but not to get something done properly. So um, I had my back operation. I was getting back into playing. I had a jam with um, Paul Curtis and uh, my guitar teacher, Andrew Cutting, and Kane Jones, who well-known bass teacher down a little longer there. Lovely guy teachers for me. We had a jam down at this, um, studios down south here, and... Jeez, that was good. We did eight songs. I gave him 15 songs. I said, pick six or seven. They did eight songs. And my back survived that for an hour and a quarter. And that was about a few weeks before COVID. So I go, oh, bloody hell. Shut down, turn off. That was it. Mm. We had this great rehearsal. It just clicked like I have had with other bands. And we all looked at each other thinking, this might work. So I thought, well, I can't do the full-on playing from my back. I can't just like kids and do what I used to do. That ain't going to happen. Um, what do you do? So, look, I haven't got back into getting that happening for lots of reasons. But, yes, I've, I've got a whole lot of stuff here. I want to put together something and record it. Um, but in a live situation with a band, not just my demos here. So that's where I'm at. And, um, yeah, it's going to happen. I'm just not sure when. So Excellent. that's what I'm about at the moment. It's, it's, it's exciting. It gets in your blood and you get in the room and you can't, you can't go to bed. Danielle. I'm coming there soon, don't worry. It's 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. I've got to go to work. You know, all that stuff. Yeah. Well, everybody that writes songs, they know what it's like. You I do. Know. I do know that stuff because it's happening morning. in my house at the moment. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, the funny thing is, is, you can get up at, I'll get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. I've got something here. I'll go up here and I'll put it down. I don't know about you, but I'll, I'll, I'll use anything to write it with drum track or a mm. vocal line or a keyboard or whatever and mm. what, don't don't hold back just put it down and some songs say that's pretty cool some say that's crap you know like but anyway we just we just do yep. the song yep that's it that's the, that's the creativity that's the creativity because it just strikes at odd times you see so you just yeah. got to go with it when it happens yeah like 1977 was a great year i first met danielle i bought my first valiant i bought my first professional drum kit the footy team I played with, we won our grand final, you know, all this sort of stuff. It was a great, it was just a great year. <laughs> but then she says, which part do I come? I said, obviously, darling, you come first. I met you first. Yeah. Otherwise, I'd be thrown out. No, she's outside. Look, I've become a grandparent for the first, we've become grandparents for the first time. Young Hamish is now nine weeks and it's one of the best things. It's another new phase. I've just become life. a grand grandmother <laughs> for the first time. <laughs> yeah. Awesome? In February. Yeah. Yeah, well, that year, Hamish was in, uh, what was it, April, March, mm. April. And so, yeah, we we got to see him a couple weeks after. Well, we drove over and come back and, oh, just awesome. So we're going to go over June long weekend, hopefully, and catch up. And, uh, yeah, lovely, lovely, different. Oh, different it's wonderful. Thing. I love it. Yeah. yeah. Thing, isn't it? And obviously, we can do FaceTime and stuff. So we can do all these things that, you know, I couldn't do when my, you know, my kids were born. We had to fly back from mm. bloody Sydney to Adelaide to, to get to see people, you know. So, mm. anyway. Yeah. Not to worry. No, it's a, it's a nice time. I'm enjoying being a grandmother. 
yeah, yeah. So we are too. It's just a, it's just an awesome feeling, isn't it? Something completely different. Where do you see yourself in the next ten years? Um, well, I actually, I know it's hard to say. I uh, obviously I'm in the shop. Um, I have no succession plans of that at all. Um, it's something that sort of grew and grew, and I've enjoyed it. Uh, I'm going to continue teaching, I reckon, for many years to come. The retail side I can take or leave is getting harder and harder, always has with the in- advent of the internet and all that sort of stuff, trying to compete with things, and I don't. I just do my own thing. Mm. I don't try and compete with the big boys. Um, so one day I'll probably just come and teach from home here and muck around my cars and do some more recordings. I still want to put out my stuff. and My, my days are seriously playing because of my back are probably the things that are hampering me. I'm not, I can't afford to damage it anymore. If I do, I'd be having full-on pins and rods and stuff in there, and I'm going to try and avoid that at all costs. And the only thing that would bring that on would be if I had to go to a gig where you're lifting your cases or your guitars through crowds. You know, it's, it ain't going to happen. As much as I'd love to, even at, at my age, I'd love to do that. I've not lost that passion, and I can still keep up with these young guys and do it. Not an issue. But as, as to protecting my back, that's what I'm about. Um, so I want to be able to enjoy doing things homey and with future grandkids. And, you know, I've, my, my, my wife is owed a lot, I guess. From being together since 77, she has put up with everything that a musician can throw you. And um, that takes a special kind of person. And there's no way I probably could have done what I've done without her being part of that. And I respect and appreciate. And I always said to her, you know, when the time, the time comes that I'm not playing, playing, I would be at home and doing this, and that's what I'm doing. You know, I've had my selfish playing time, and uh, I don't care what anybody says. To be a musician, you have to have a fair bit of selfishness to be able to pursue your career. Mm. Um, and you're not kidding anybody. It's a, it's a fact. It's just what it is. Mm. It's a very individualistic thing, isn't it? It's yeah, it is. Like, you know, so and nothing wrong with it. You know, it's um, it's part of the game. I got no regrets. That's why my father unfortunately went to his grave with a lot of regrets. I'm not going to go to my grave with regrets. I'm I'm quite content with everything that's happened before me. Um, I've got no apologies for anything. Um, we just push on, yeah. enjoy life as best we can. I'd still like to record my stuff, and I yeah, you know, I see myself writing songs. I, I, I'm curious as to how the music industry is going to go. And this is another subject, and I, I think I have a bit of an interview where. Is it uh, John from the Iron Horse? I don't know him personally. Yeah, John Yacker. Mm. John Yacker, yeah. Uh, I think I might have played with one of his cousins, Eddie Yacopetta, years ago. Lovely guy. Unfortunately, he left. he's not with us now. But one of those guys in that band, I think it was his cousin or relative, and, and they, were, they were a good band. Mm. Um, but, you know, what? what is going to happen? You know, we come from an era where we could do records, do CDs, put stuff out, have some product to give to people. Now they're giving them jack all for playing on Spotify and all these things. And they say, yes, you have to be on there to promote it. But they're getting nothing for it. If the bands that are working, that were working, were making money from touring, they're not making money from selling any product, maybe merchandise, but they're getting No, that's wrong. because they're putting it all on there, and that's just ridiculous. You should just that's be putting down exactly. out a couple of songs, give people a taste of what you are about, and exactly. then if they want the album, they've got to come to your website exactly. and buy it from right. you. Exactly right. I've been saying this for the last couple of years. You're spot on. You're, you're right. It's stupid. You're just, what's the point, you know? And uh, they're cutting their own throats. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, that's the tricky bit. Where's it going to go? With the, the live gigs, I reckon, you know, that, that scene will pick up again. Will we see big concerts like we've always had? Probably will, but in a different way. There won't be the numbers. Will they be viable because they haven't got the numbers? We don't know. Who knows, you know? Mm. Um, people I've dealt with, obviously, that were thrown on the scrap heap and weren't helped at all when COVID hit. 
the lighting people and road, yeah, all those guys, they were just thrown up. Weren't helped at all. Not yeah, at all. Yeah. Um, and sucks. So, yeah, where where is that side of it going to go? If I, if I record all my stuff and I put it out, what am I going to do? Well, I don't know. Who's going to listen to it? Is anybody going to listen to old man's original stuff that still might be, you know, interesting to some people? I don't, I'm not sure how to approach it, Di. You know, mm. um, it's a new world for me too. So mm. that's something I'll be investigating. Do I get a YouTube site and release some little bits here? Do I do this? Do I do that? I don't know. You know, you're doing your podcast. I reckon it's great. You found something that obviously you enjoy doing and you're meeting all us people and we're telling our stories and everybody's getting to have a bit of a listen to it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, the whole world wide web now is open and they're listening around the world as well andy that's the amazing part yeah there's so many great and good good players and great bands you know the units the fools irving and the accounts there's a whole lot of bands that come through that greasy pop era you know that were they, they really forged the way for adelaide bands too you know mm. and they get underestimated we're all trying to do stuff um for the industry you know for ourselves getting our songs out there and doing that and that that was a great period, you know. It was really, really, as you through the say through the eighties, you would have seen those bands mm, mm. Um, at all those venues. They yep. good fun, good fun. Great days, great days, you know, great days. And I love, lucky I get to play with some of those bigger Aussie bands in the early days, like I say, Huda Gurus and the Saints. All that. it was good fun. You know, so you so. you played with all the bands that I used to love going to see. Let's oh, go and see the gurus. Oh, <laughs> oh the gurus are great. Oh, unfortunately, kicked out James Baker because the worst thing he's a nice play. But anyway, <laughs> got the guy from the evening because he was a producer wouldn't work with James. I go, ah, oh, you bastards. You know, that's a bit rough. Probably put someone's nose out of joint there. But, you know, the gurus are great with him too. But I, they were just a good live band like all the other Aussie. All the Aussie bands, you know, we, uh, I think we were lucky to have maybe a, a scene here that a lot of other countries probably envy. Yeah, the pub rock scene. Yeah, yeah. 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 Whether you love or hate it, it was part of our scene, a part of our culture. And those old farts like me, we, we all know part of that. And it was good fun. Uh, you know, good fun. Mm. I'd love to thank all the guys and girls I've played with over the years because, you know, we've always had such good times and some of them aren't with us. But, you know, we will remember them and we will always remember all the fun times that we can get together as if it was yesterday. Some of those mates I've been mates with for 40 years. We can get together and talk about stuff and as I'm sure you'll be well aware with, with your friends for a long time mm. that you can talk about things that's just like yesterday. Mm. And now I really appreciate that and I would love to thank all those people for the great times we've had because we don't thank them enough, I think, our friends. We don't tell them that we love them and you know, it's been good times. So uh, to everybody, thank you very much. Well, I'm still having a ball and we'll continue to and hopefully you guys and girls are too. So. Before we end our chat today, I'm going to ask Andy 20 quick random questions or as many as we can get through in the space of two minutes to close the interview. Are you ready, Andy? Never been ready, yeah. Okay. Your time starts now. What was the first concert that you went to? Pass. Radio Birdman or The Saints? Name the first album that you purchased. Uh, pass. Who was your favourite cartoon character? Uh, Yosemite Sam. Name a band you wish you'd seen play live. Led Zeppelin. Which do you prefer, vinyl or CDs? Vinyl. 
the most sticks that you've dropped during a gig? One. Name your favourite punk song from the 70s. Oh, Saint Stranded. If you couldn't play drums, what else would you like to do or play? Bass. Name a famous drummer that you'd like to meet. Worst venue that you've been to? Uh, what was the last CD that you purchased? Oh, good question. Um, living in. Who taught you how to drive? Dad. Name your favourite Sex Pistols album. Uh, the first one, Bollocks, is it? Yep. Name one thing that you cannot live without. What was the last concert that you went to? Living in, I think. What is your biggest fear? Uh, dying too early. Least favourite song to play? Any cover song. What is your number one bucket list item? Fish my convertible. Favourite book? We'll go back to the, what was it? Oh, sorry. Out of time. I was going to go back to the ones that you passed to see if you could answer them. You, you got through all 20, but you didn't actually, you did pass on quite a few. So, you know, that's a bit dubious there, Andy. I when you were telling your stories earlier i thought you were, that you know that question was made for you but no <laughs> oh, it's, it's funny that you've got to be on the fly and on the spot what what you had your brains going no 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 that's but, okay but you, you so you got through all 20 questions but you didn't answer really questions. enough to make it a win and <laughs> Look, thank you, Andy, for, once again for joining me for the Band About podcast today. You've been great to chat to, and I hope that everyone who listens finds this as enjoyable as I did. All of the information and links relating to today's interview can be found in the show notes. And please feel free to leave a voice message if you have any requests for future Band About podcast guests. And make sure that you follow this podcast so that you don't miss the next episode. Thank you, Andy, for being a guest today. Thank you, Di. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. And I uh, hope some people get some enjoyment out of it. But, uh, all the best with all your future interviews, mate. That's great. Thank you. No, it's been great having you along. You've been really good fun to chat with. It has been fun. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. So uh, continue on, mate. Continue on. Doing a good job. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks all for right. listening, everybody. That's it for me today. Di, banded about, proudly supporting live music. Bye. Bye.